I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives Disease in Childhood. In this podcast, I'm going to cover some of the content from the October edition of the journal. In a leading article in this issue, Mary Ramsey from Public Health England discusses the important and ever-relevant topic of measles immunisation and the legacy of low vaccine coverage. The initial focus is to remind the reader of the seriousness of measles infection. There are 150,000 deaths per year worldwide. The second focus is to discuss the importance and potential success of widespread immunisation. So measles immunisation was introduced in the UK in 1968, with the MMR being introduced in 1988. There was high initial coverage, more than 90%, with a dramatic fall in the numbers of cases of measles. That was until the early 2000s, when because of a potential link with autism, uptake fell significantly. To less than 80% in under twos in London, that was in 2003 and 2004. It has since then largely recovered, being up to 92% in under twos by 2012. But the legacy, and this is discussed in at length in the article, is the unvaccinated cohort, with since 2006 to 7 large outbreaks in populations with low coverage, and since 2011 to 12 a sustained increase in cases of measles, with 1,920 confirmed cases in England in 2012, and almost 1,200 confirmed cases in the first five months of this year. This has been accompanied by a shift in the age group affected towards 10 to 14 year olds. So these are the children that weren't vaccinated in the early part of this century. The article discusses the crucial importance of catch-up immunisation, emphasised and supported by the recent MMR catch-up programme initiated in the UK. This is an important article. It puts the issues with measles immunisation into a clear and focused historical context, with a clear message for action now, supported by the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, who have written to all members, urging them to use every opportunity to promote vaccination to their patients and their families. The second article I've chosen relates to the nutritional content of commercial weaning foods. So as clinicians, we're often asked by parents to advise about the introduction of solids. Solids are recommended from six months, but often given earlier and commercial weaning foods are often used. In fact, two-thirds of infants in the UK have commercial weaning foods as their first solids. In this issue, Garcia and colleagues describe the types of commercial infant foods available and an overview of their taste, texture and nutritional content. It's an impressive article Almost 500 products were identified from six suppliers, mostly ready-made spoonable foods. 44% aimed at infants from four months and 65% being sweet. The interesting and important finding from this study is that the mean energy content per 100 mils of ready-made spoonable feeds 
was similar to breast milk or commercial formula. This has quite a significant importance in that we expect when weaning solids are introduced that the energy density is higher than milk. Interestingly, and there are some recipes in the article, the nutrient and energy content of family homemade weaning foods is much higher. So the authors in this important article conclude that the majority of commercial weaning foods will not serve the intended purpose of enhancing nutrient density, taste and texture in infant diets. And their secondary conclusion, which we should all support, is that homemade weaning solids should be encouraged. The next article that I'd like to highlight this month relates to the diagnosis of CNAP disease. Screening data shows a 1% incidence with only 10 to 20% being diagnosed. So there is a shortfall in the UK in the diagnosis of celiac disease when compared against a screened population. There are many potential presentations, including overt gastrointestinal symptoms, non-gastrointestinal symptomatic presentation, and diagnosis as a consequence of screening high-risk cases. In this issue, Merch and colleagues report the new UK guidance and highlight in that the complexities of presentation, strategies for diagnosis and priorities in management. This guidance includes new diagnostic algorithms which include the potential to avoid biopsy in selected cases in whom serology and HLA type is informative. The authors emphasise, however, that in most cases biopsy is still required and that gluten-free diets should not be started until a definitive diagnostic algorithm has been followed by a specialist in the diagnosis and management of this now very common condition. I'd like to finish by highlighting two new series in education and practice. Firstly, in August this year, we launched a series of articles on research in practice, which I hope are helpful and of interest. The second new series we've launched is called Equipped, which is a new series of articles on quality improvement. In this month's education and practice, there's a comprehensive introduction to the subject by our series advisor, Robert Kleber. Further articles will follow covering essential aspects of this new specialist area for the busy clinician with practical guidance for implementation. I'm Mark Beattie. Thank you for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.